The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. Great to Good be here. Good to see you again. Yes, yes. All are well? Yes, Father. Yes. Yep. Yeah, we're getting um, well. Father, any uh, prayer requests before we begin the show? Yes, today? always. There, uh, it's a, a plethora of prayer requests. Uh, can't mention everyone. Uh, but I do ask prayers for uh, Chris Foley. We just found out that Christopher Foley passed away in California. Uh, we knew him as a young lad, you know, but uh, <clears throat> so he passed away. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess it was a heart problem. Please pray for Chris. And uh, please pray also for the repose of the soul of Nellie, Gr Nellie Brown. I was mentioning Nellie Gray, too, you know. The, um, but uh, I mentioned Nellie Brown, who just passed away, a wonderful lady. And uh, we uh, keep her family in our prayers, her noble husband and uh, youngster. They were children. They're, they're grown now and have families of their own. But it's your mom, you know, and no one, no one can take the place at all. So um, but we also want to pray for Anna Rajagopal, Anna, uh, young lady, I understand she's 28, actually, and um, she is gravely ill with double pneumonia. It's, it's a very, uh, uh, what should I say, a um, very strong form of uh, viral pneumonia, which is uh, doing a lot of damage. So please keep her in your prayers and her family, too. Pray for Father Carly and uh, Father Zapp, Father... Father Zapp, Father Finnegan, and Father Starbuck, all of whom are ill. Father Greenwell is largely recovered. Thank you for your prayers. But uh, I also <clears throat> ask you to continue your prayers for Monsignor Handworker and also for uh, Dr. Michael Zanoni. And um, also for Jonathan Zapp. Please keep uh, Mr. Zapp in your prayers. We need him back in action here. So uh, all those prayers are appreciated. There are many more, including some little children who need your prayers, so uh, please be generous in praying for them. God will bless them and you at the same time uh, for your charity and praying for these intentions. Very good. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for that. Um, we have some viewer emails tonight, Father, among other things, but I uh, thought we could start with the question we uh, intended to answer last week, but a great question about guardian angels, and uh, one of our viewers wanted to know if it is possible to pray to another's guardian angel, uh, especially those who live far away at some distance from us. Could we pray to their guardian angels? 
It certainly, it certainly can. Yes. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I mean, angels uh, have a much, uh, shall we say, more extensive attention than we do. Our attention is pretty much um, channeled by our exterior senses, you know, and are taking in the world around us. The angels are bodily spirits, as you know, with intelligence and will to know God, love God, and um, to know us, actually. But our angels know us in a very different way than we know each other, because we know each other by <clears throat> interpreting what we see and what we hear of the other person. <clears throat> and what we see and we hear come through the senses, it's neurological. And um, over time, we gradually form impressions of other people. We hear what their voices understand what they're saying, or think we do, <clears throat> observe them in action, and so on. And so we form an opinion of them. But angels actually see our souls. Uh, as bodily spirits, bodiless spirits, they actually see our souls first, and they see our bodies insofar as they are united to our souls. And so um, the angels' knowledge of us is much more intimate than any knowledge we can have of each other in this life. Uh, this life is therefore kind of intrinsically lonely in that regard. <clears throat> Every now and then we read about uh, a saint who was given the power to read souls. In other words, it's as though he could sort of give it a glimpse of the person, the other person's soul, uh, at least certain aspects of the person's uh, spiritual life, in order to guide them. But um, that's a special charism or a special gift of God. For the benefit, not of the person who receives it, but for the benefit of the person who, uh, whose soul, state of soul is revealed, so that this spiritual director can be of help to someone in need. Uh, the angel doesn't need that special charism, as it were. It doesn't need a special enlightenment, because the angel actually sees the soul. And the angel sees uh, the soul not only by virtue of the spirituality of the soul and the spirituality of the angel, <clears throat> so it's a natural view that the angel has as an angel of the, of the spirit, mm -hmm. soul. But um, the angel also, because it is a blessed spirit in the beatific vision of God, has even a more perfect knowledge of the soul than, he would, than the angel would, naturally speaking, by its own angelic nature, because it actually sees the soul as it is in the eyes of God. Uh, the angel can't not see perfectly and can't, cannot comprehend <clears throat> the soul uh, as God, God alone can. You know, the, the intellect and will of the soul is still very much sacrosanct. You know. but, um, but the angel does have a specially elevated um, knowledge of the soul. What this means is um, not only we must pray to our own guardian angels, but we can also invoke the guardian angels of others, too. And uh, the guardian angels would be well aware of the fact that we are invoking them and asking them. Usually, we're praying for the people whose guardian angels they are. And, uh, for example, I, I would pray, and I do actually, pray for the guardian angels uh, of all the members of my family, the members of the congregation. I invoke the guardian angels of all of them, to protect them, watch over them. Um, so we pray the prayer to the guardian angel, angels, angel of God, my guardian dear. But for someone like a father of a family or a priest who has a, a church full of people, 
to pray angels of God, our guardians, dear, the plural would be perfectly appropriate for them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> In fact, I heartily recommend that they do honor the guardian angels of, uh, especially those to whom they've given life, to those for whom they're responsible, their spouses, their children, grandchildren, and so on, um, and do that every day. Mm -hmm. And this ability you described that guardian angels have to see the soul uh, of someone, they're able to, to see multiple souls at once, so when their attention is focused on uh, those who are in their charge and their care, they can also still, if someone is, another soul is praying to them, they can see that soul as well? Oh, definitely, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, in this room right now, we look around, we see people, you know, even with peripheral vision, you know. But the angel doesn't have peripheral vision. It doesn't need peripheral vision. Um, its attention is like in a, localized, localized somewhat, you know. An angel actually moves by thought and with the speed of thought, you know, angelic thought. Um, but, you know, the, the, the greater the perfection of the angel, and there's a hierarchy of perfections in the angels, uh, the, more, uh, the more they see at one time, the more they, they fathom and the deeper they see also, the uh, more deeply they see into the souls of, of, well, other angels, don't have souls, but into the, the, the souls of mankind they certainly see, and they can see more deeply the more elevated they are as angels. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, uh, that's um, so our guardian angels are, the, are angels, so they are the lowest level of those beings, as you know. But they are assigned by God to watch over us. Mm. And uh, so they have a particular interest in us, particular concern for us. And uh, yes, our, our prayers to them, not only our own guardian angels, but the guardian angels of those we know and love, even our enemies. We can pray to the guardian angels God has assigned to them uh, to ask for protection, not only for ourselves, but you know, the, our guardian angel will be able to exercise his office over even people who are in the state of sin. Wow. Okay. It's very fascinating, Father. Um, let's move on to another question. Uh, we had a viewer ask if you could give any background on the obelisk and St. Peter's Square. He said that some claims St. Peter's Square was designed by Freemasons. Is there any truth to that? Well, the Freemasonry, uh, as the craft, was... Uh, Historically established in 1717 by Ashmole, a librarian in London. And so, since St. Peter's, uh, Bernini's piazza in front of St. Peter's was actually designed and uh, brought into, into being, as it were, in the early 1600s, it's unlikely, you know. So it would have preceded the establishment of Freemasonry in England by a hundred years. Uh, so I think this is, uh, no, uh, the Bernini's Piazza in front of St. Peter's was not designed by Freemasons. Right? Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, um, I'm not sure, I'd never heard that, and I don't know where that idea came from, but somebody just might have been speculating. Um, the Piazza of Bernini, uh, was it designed by him? Certainly, but um, in its architectural uh, point points and engineering and so on. But the idea of the, the arms, as it were, of the, uh, the colonnade, you know, that comes up, so 
they say the symbolism of that is this is the Catholic Church, and it embraces actually as Catholic all mankind, right? Um, so um, if anyone is to be saved, it is to be saved through that one church of the one true Son of the one true God, our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, and the sacrifice of our Lord. So the universality of the church, or the Catholicity of the church, is really supposed to be mirrored in the, uh, you know, the, the uh, circular colonnade here, but also in the very center of that is the, um, the obelisk. Um, and one might argue, well, isn't the obelisk itself right, a Freemasonic symbol? Right. And the answer is, well, no, it's not, right? Uh, obelisks um, generally are attributed to the Egyptians who uh, used the obelisk to uh, symbolize their sun god, Ra, and also Egyptian power. It was a symbol of their power. The, the pharaohs took great pride in their, in their obelisks. Um, um, no, no doubt. I mean, as part of their religious observances, because the pharaohs tied everything into their religion, right, as it was, paganism. And their very power they associated with uh, with Osis Osiris, Osis Osiris, and uh, or Isis Osiris, and Ra, and so on. Uh, so was it a religious symbol? It was, you know. But again, the lines were pretty much blurred between between the Pharaoh's power on Earth and the divine powers. But that's how it was with the Romans too. I mean, they. Uh, looked upon the emperor as being something of a god and destined to be divinized after his, his death. Um, this is what happens when you, <clears throat> with, with paganism. I mean, paganism um, actually uh, tries to take the powers of earth and make them into quasi-divine powers. Um, so they have power over life and death, body and soul. Uh, this is a warning to us today, right now, with the New World Order, because this is exactly what they're trying to do today, returning us to neo-paganism, uh, the axis of, of uh, neo-paganism between the Vatican and, uh, and the World Economic Forum, and, you know, its base. Uh, it's all designed to move mankind back to a neo-pagan world, which divinizes uh, the world power. And... You know, the leaders of the World Economic Forum make no bones about it, that they are the gods of the new, the new age, and they're going to redesign humanity. So uh, it's just a matter of reestablishing um, the ancient paganism with modern technology, uh, with the pretense of omniscience uh, and uh, omnipresence, you know, uh, which Satan has you know, so craved for so long. Uh, he thinks he can somehow attain that or have the illusion of attaining it through uh, our modern technology. But in any case, uh, getting back to the obelisk. Um, no, the, the, the obelisk as a symbol of Egyptian power uh, therefore had a special significance for the Romans. Uh, when the Romans conquered Egypt, they, they actually carry these obelisks back to Rome. There are 13 Egyptian obelisks in Rome right now. The largest of them is uh, actually outside uh, in the Piazza, I'd say St. John Lateran, uh, 
I think that was brought to Rome by Augustus, actually. Um, so that that tradition, uh, what became the Roman tradition of imperial um, kidnapping of Egypt's uh, obelisks, I think began with Augustus himself. And it's somewhat uh, significant that that, um, that that obelisk stands outside St. John Lateran, the church that Constantine gave, the basilica that, Saint Const that Constantine gave to the church, um, and uh, became the official, well, the mother and the, the head of all the churches in the world. Um, but probably the most famous of all of the uh, obelisks is what this gentleman mentions, <clears throat> the obelisk in front of St. Peter's. Uh, that was actually brought from Egypt by Caligula, and it was brought uh, to uh, to Rome to actually stand in the circus that he was building in the Vatican. Uh, at that time, the Vatican was outside the walls of Rome, and um, still is actually, and uh, was to the west of the city beyond the Tiber. Uh, it was a rather swampy and somewhat unsavory area. Those who went out to the games and the entertainments provided at the circus being built by Caligula and sometimes referred to as the Circus of Nero, a descendant of Caligula, the last actually imperial descendant of Caligula. Um, um, but that, that was standing in the spina, the center of the, uh, the stadium built by Caligula. And... Uh, the claim to fame of that obelisk is that it witnessed, as it were, the, the martyrdom of St. Peter. Uh, St. Peter was martyred underneath uh, that spina, or uh, by that spina and underneath that, uh, that obelisk. The shadow of the obelisk might well have fallen on St. Peter as he hung upside down on the cross. And, um, and uh, so... We know that um, the body of St. Peter was cut down by probably Greek slaves, Christian slaves, at the end of the games that day, uh, June 29th, the year 67. And his body was spirited up to up the slope of a, a nearby hill called the Vatican Hill. And um, that hill was covered with uh, above-ground well, mausolea, or Hippogea, as they were called. Uh, they were actually funeral tombs. Um, so um, the body of St. Peter was hastily carried under the cover of dusk up among those tombs, uh, carried beyond the upper reaches of those tombs, and they're hastily buried. Um, and it was a site of pilgrimage for Christians for many centuries, still is today. Uh, there's a long story about it. If one wanted to go and visit uh, that very spot, one could do so by uh, contacting the Vatican, uh, look up the office of the Viscavi, the excavations, and make reservations to go on the, the tour that would take a pilgrim to that very spot. But in any case, um, <clears throat> the obelisk of that uh, circus um, as I say, begun by Caligula, completed by Nero. Um, it was in the reign of Nero that Peter, St. Peter died. Uh, that obelisk stood there 
until the year 1586, so all that time. Uh, and finally, Pope Sixtus V had the obelisk moved. It was a monumental task. I mean, Romans had, had laid these obelisks down into specially engineered uh, receptacles for them. You're talking about, you know, maybe 100 feet high, uh, weighing hundreds of tons, solid granite or, or basalt, you know. And um, they had to be moved in such a way that they weren't broken, uh, transported overland, then transported by sea, and then overland again, brought to the destination in Rome, um, and then raised. The engineering, I mean, the fact that the Roman legions had conquered Egypt was impressive enough. The fact that they were able to engineer, taking their obelisks away, getting them to Rome and re-erecting uh, re them, that was a triumph of engineering in its own right. Very impressive. And when Pope Sixtus V raised the obelisk uh, in, directly in front of St. Peter's, uh, in the very center of those arms of uh, the colonnade of Bernini, it was an, a massive and enormous operation requiring horses, probably elephants too, I imagine. Uh, there are woodcuts that depict this, um, that describe the occasion of moving that obelisk from where it had been in the circus of Nero, <clears throat> taken uh, before the, the well, actually, St. Peter's was being rebuilt at that time. Uh, you know, the, the, the original St. Peter's Basilica was consecrated in 360, having been built by Constantine. And it stood until, well, between 1504 and, and 1626, the ancient basilica of Constantine was re replaced piece by piece, rebuilt piece by piece, section by section. So it took you know, 120 years to replace the ancient Basilica of Constantine with the current St. Peter's Basilica, which was finally completed in 1626. But before it was even completed, Sextus V had the obelisk moved and positioned right, right in front of the facade of what would be the completed St. Peter's Basilica. Mm -hmm. 1586, uh, 1626, when the, when the uh, basilica was completed, so 40 years before the basilica was completed, Sixtus V had the obelisk moved. Um, tremendous um, undertaking, and, uh, uh, you know, again, it was a tribute to their engineering at the time, but certainly a tribute to uh, the Roman uh, know-how. Nope. Uh, back when, uh, you know, that quite 2,000 years before. Uh, they used um, sailors, largely, uh, to man the ropes. The sailors knew ropes. Um, and, uh, but anyway, there's stories associated with that. And so I'm hesitating right now because I'm thinking about what not to say because there's so much behind yeah. all of that yeah. that is really interesting, but it's, it's not to the point of what he's saying here. Mm -hmm. But I hope all of this begins to give you an idea that no, the obelisk that was raised in front of St. Peter's, <clears throat> the, the developing St. Peter's Basilica was not a Freemasonic work. Uh, it was an ancient Egyptian uh, 
uh, work to symbolize Egyptian power and the power of their, their sun god, Ra. You know? mm -hmm. And um, the reason why St. Peter had that basilica, uh, rather, uh, the successor of St. Peter, Sixtus V, had that ob obelisk moved to the front of St. Peter's Basilica is because he now wanted it to represent the triumph of Christ over pagan Rome. And um, so he had a cross erected on top of that obelisk, which represented the triumph of the cross of Christ. It even says, you know, behold, the cross of Christ, depart all enemy powers, you know, everything that resists must flee now because Christ is triumphed. And there are relics of the true cross of our Lord in that cross. It's that kind of tower over the, you know, the fountains and so on. And it was so it was moved to symbolize the triumph of Christ over not only the pagan empire, but over the paganism throughout the world. And the entire pagan world was now subject to, to Christ who had, was victorious in his cross and his resurrection. So uh, far from it being a Masonic uh, symbol, it is quite the opposite of that. Basically, you'd have to say it's the symbol of Christ's triumph over all masonry and anything that would um, be openly or disguised paganism, as masonry is. Okay, very good, wow. Um, well, we actually had another question about Freemasonry, Father, and one of our viewers wanted to know if it was acceptable for a Catholic to work closely um, in business fields with a Freemason, and if you could even take uh, business classes, business courses from a Freemason, would that be acceptable? Well, it's obviously forbidden to engage in any religious practice with a Mason. I mean, even if the Masons wanted to, let's say, pray the rosary with you, whatever, um, you know, the church would basically kind of frown on that. Um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, uh, you know, had had to face those questions, and also in Catholic action, under Pius the Eleventh, Pius the Twelfth, he was always very much discouraged. I, I think they're taking their cue from uh, um, uh, Oliver Plunkett, Bishop Oliver Plunkett, who was being put to death by the Protestants back in the 1500s, and uh, as he was on the scaffold, about to be put to death for his Catholic faith. They asked him to pray with them. He said he would not pray with heretics. They asked him where he wanted to be buried, what cemetery. He said he would not be buried with heretics. He said he insisted on being buried out in the open field. Um, so this was essentially the church's idea with regard to ecumenism, right? um, which anything that would indicate that these religions are equivalent or even that... Uh, uh, they're both and somehow true. There's one true religion, and all other religions must be false religions by definition, you know, principle of contradiction uh, or non-contradiction. So uh, the church has always upheld that. The question comes in, though, it's a different question as whether or not it's good to engage in some kind of business, business practices. Well, I mean, obviously, when you're out shopping, you know, you're going to buy from businesses that might be Masonic owned and Masonic controlled. Um, even there, uh, I think the church's idea would be that you should uh, actually frequent businesses of your own um, co-religionists, you know, to prosper them, to benefit them. Charity begins at home, right? I mean, even St. Paul talks about that. So, um, but that doesn't forbid, forbid buying, buying things. 
or selling things um, to uh, non-Catholics or even, you know, anti-Catholics um, as far as business goes. Um, should one, though, actually become involved in business with a Freemason, I, I, again, I think it's very a very big mistake to do so because Freemasons actually very much like uh, Muslims themselves and so on, they have the idea that they promote Freemasonry. Uh, they are dedicated to that, um, uh, pretty much bound to it by the craft itself. Um, as the Muslims are bound to promote Islam and Sharia law by the fact that they are Muslims. It requires this of them. So, um, insofar as one is engaging in, in business with them, uh, one is contributing to that somehow. I mean, one's own prosperity is that pros their prosperity too. Uh, not only that, one is putting himself at risk too of being influenced by them, right? Or even taken advantage of. Again, because there's a different morality among uh, the Jews uh, in the Talmud about how they treat Christians. They're not obliged to the same moral principles they would in treating, be held in uh, trading each other. It's almost a, a badge of honor to cheat a Christian. And so um, I think you find also in dealing with masonry um, that the attitude toward anyone who's really living as a Christian and being faithful to Christ is um, not considered on the same plane and not worthy of the same consideration, uh, the same justice or quote-unquote charity. Um, and uh, I think you'd find that there is justification for abusing them and even incentive for doing so. I think it's a big mistake to get involved with them in business. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, um, switch topics. Father, we had a viewer write in and uh, ask a question about the differences between the consecrations that uh, Bishop Took performed and uh, that that uh, Bishop Mendez performed. And he said that there are many questions surrounding the mental, the mental capacity of both Bishop Took and Bishop Mendez in regard to the Episcopal consecrations performed by then. And he asked, why do we accept the testimony of those who claim that Bishop Mendez was of sound mind while we uh, at the same time reject the testimony of those who claim that Bishop Took was of sound mind? What's the difference? That's a good question. And actually, uh, uh, there was so much confusion and so much contradiction involved in uh, the, the condition of Archbishop Took his mental capacity and so on, that finally uh, three of our priests, uh, Father Sanborn, Father Kelly, and I, uh, actually flew to Munich, Germany, for the sake of getting our own answers and not relying on all these second, third, fourth hand reports. We went to Munich to talk to the two men who were the closest associates of, Arch of Archbishop Took. Uh, Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller. Actually, they were two university professors at the University of Munich. <clears throat> and they were very much involved with Archbishop Took. They were uh, the only two men, the only two present at some of his consecrations. And they were involved in many of the consecrations of Took. Um, so we thought because of their uh, close association with him, their involvement with him on a personal basis, um, 
especially with regard to the, the consecrations that he was alleged to have done, we thought we just have to go and talk to these men and bypass all of the, what could amount to just rumors. Um, as far as I know, we're the only ones who did that diligence to actually try to sit down with them. And we, we arrived with a number of questions that we, we needed answered. I will say that we, and I think this is true of all three of us, I think all three of us agree, uh, arrived uh, with goodwill, uh, not predispositions to say, we're going to go there and prove them wrong or prove there's something wrong with them. In fact, um, the idea we had was not to try to justify some of the things that Archbishop Took had done, um, but to find out, in fact, if we could verify the validity of the, the consecrations, the ordinations and consecrations they'd done. So that at least if people uh, in this country were availing themselves of clergy ordained and consecrated by Archbishop Took, we'd have some kind of confidence that, okay, we got the answers we needed to show that the, the correct matter, form, and intention necessary for the valid sacrament were present. And so um, that would be very reassuring, okay? Um, I, don't, I can't speak for Bishop Kelly in that. Can't see because of the sandboard in that so much. I can say for my own sake, I would have been very relieved to find out that uh, we could at least have the have the certitude we need that these were valid. Okay, going forward. Um, so as I say, we didn't go over there to prove one way or the other. We just were looking for answers, and we uh, took a dolmetscher, a, a translator, with us. Who uh, uh, these these two gen gentlemen uh, each, uh, teaching in Munich, obviously German, <clears throat> native native language. We took a native German speaking person who spoke fluent English. As it turns out, it wasn't necessary because they both spoke fluent English, understood perfectly what we said, and we understood perfectly what they said. They were very very candid. We appreciated that. I actually recorded the uh, the sessions we had with them. Uh, at that time, it was on cassette tape, you know, but it, it, it was adequate, it worked. And um, so we asked a series of questions. And um, our, our focus at first had to do with the, the, the consecrations that took it done that they had witnessed. And we were asking them to uh, simply tell us what they had seen and heard. Uh, specifically with reform, with regard to the matter and form of the sacrament. Uh, did they actually hear the, the words which constitute the form of the sacrament? Uh, were they said, were they spoken, were they spoken correctly? Um, uh, were, did they witness the laying out of hands, for example, the matter of, of the consecration of a bishop? And... Um, we, so we were looking for some very specific answers. Uh, and the answer we got from them was uh, they didn't recall, they didn't know this was necessary, it was never explained to them what constituted the matter and form. And that they really were not witnesses, they were just there serving as servers. But they could not testify um, when we were asking the question, um, nor could they have testified at the time either because they didn't know what to look for. Nothing was explained to them. 
with regard to the matter in form. Um, as far as the intention of Archbishop took, they gave us an earful about that, especially uh, the gentleman in the evening. I think it was Professor Heller, if I'm mistaken. It's a little foggy here, but uh, I think it was. But in any case, as I say, we have the record of that. And, uh, <clears throat> but they both gave us some testimony about Archbishop Took's state of mind. And I would have thought that since they were proponents of the um, Archbishop Took consecrations, that they would have whitewashed it or somehow, as it were, played down or minimized the rumors. But what they told us went far beyond anything we had heard by rumor. Uh, they said that he had the mind of a child. Archbishop Took had the mind of a child. Cats were, I, I mentioned this before in some of our What Catholics Believe programs. They told us that there were cats. He had five cats and they were walking across the altar when he uh, said mass um, in his apartment. <clears throat> um, uh, this was routine. It wasn't, uh, you know, just something they had witnessed as a one time and one occasion. Um, um, when we even asked him why um, Archbishop Took, if, if he did in fact consecrate uh, Jean Lavarie, the homosexual beer delivering activist, uh, he was not, he was a homosexual activist in Paris who had actually started his own religion, basically. Um, uh, he had already been consecrated outside the church by his whiteness, Martugdual II of the Celtic Church. Um, so this man was truly, you know, a schismatic who had left the Catholic Church. And, and was he, in fact, consecrated by Took then, subsequently to that? And the answer was, yes, he was. Uh, and when we asked, why would Archbishop Took do that? <clears throat> and Archbishop Took knew that he had been consecrated outside the Catholic Church already. So why would he uh, then administer the traditional rite of Episcopal consecration on a man like that? He did it conditionally, which is a clear indication that he already knew he'd been through a consecration ceremony, in this case, schismatically. And they testified that they asked Archbishop, Archbishop took that very same question. Why would you do that? And his answer, they said, was, because I thought it would make him a Catholic by consecrating him a bishop. That's absurd, you know. But they testified, and in fact, under oath, that this was, this was what he said to them. And um, again, you know, we kind of pursued that a bit uh, because Archbishop Took was alleged to have a doctorate in moral theology and uh, canon law, I think, was, and uh, how he could in any way justify this is mind. And uh, when we asked, well, why, why would he do such a thing? Uh, the answer uh, was, well, he didn't have much money. Literally, quote unquote, he, he didn't have very much money. That opened up all kinds of questions, you know. So, I mean, this was uh, actual testimony coming um, formal testimony coming from those who were the closest associates of Archbishop Dutt. Um, This was very distressing. Um, they did also acknowledge that before he consecrated uh, Gerard Laurier, before he had the consecration ceremony of uh, Father Gerard Laurier, uh, he had uh, just a week previously, um, uh, what is it, um, Hans celebrated the Novus Ordo 
with the Bishop of Toulon in France, with uh, five other Nova Soto priests. Um, and this came just after he had told Gerard Laurier that he didn't believe John Paul II was even a pope. So he comes, celebrates the new mass. <clears throat> and again, they said they asked him, how could you do that? Um, and his answer to them that they, they, they gave was that uh, he felt he had a debt of gratitude to the bishop, the Novus Ordo Bishop of Toulon, who'd taken him in and given him this apartment and let him have a confessional and a function at his cathedral. Um, but it was okay because when it came time for the consecration at the new mass, he withheld his intention. And, you know, this is moral theology 101, sacramental theology 101. Uh, to withhold your intention and simulate a sacrament is a sacrilege. But he, he said this justified what he was doing. So there was clearly something wrong. Um, something gravely wrong. So we came away with, uh, all, of, all three of us came away with the idea that we can't touch this. Father Samhorn also came away with that. I asked him explicitly uh, that we cannot touch this. We cannot inflict this on the people. Uh, Father Samhorn said at the time that he had his own subjective confidence, certitude in Father Gerardo Laurier that he would have been sure that his consecration was valid. But even there, I mean, uh, Gerardo Laurier um, had to interrupt Archbishop Took during the ceremony to remind him not to invoke the name of John Paul II because Archbishop Took had told him that he didn't believe that he was the Pope. And Gerard Laurier had told Archbishop Took that he didn't want to be consecrated by him if Archbishop Took believed he was a Pope. So, um, the, the, you know, again, the, these men testified, and they were the only other people in the room, but they testified that uh, Gerard Laurier had to interrupt and stop Archbishop Took from invoking the name because he repeatedly invoked the name of John Paul II as having authorized that consecration, which is preposterous, obviously. So again, I mean, uh, you know, there were serious, serious problems. So if someone's going to ask us, well, on what basis do we question the, the mental state of Archbishop Took it would be on the basis of the fact that we investigated as well as anybody really could going to talk to the two men on earth who had the most uh, involvement with him. Um, and, you know, these were serious men. They were university professors, and they, they spoke very in a very forthright, very honest way. Uh, they didn't try to cover anything up, as far as we could tell. And uh, what they had to say was not favorable. Mm. It was not encouraging. It didn't allay any fears. It just uh, actually sealed them. Yeah. Uh, as far as Archbishop uh, Bishop Mendez, no. I mean, <clears throat> again, I mean, we had personal involvement with Bishop Mendez. He'd been a member of a family friend of mine, uh, a friend of my parents for going back 30 years through Natalie White, his secretary, an acquaintance of his, a convert of his, actually, Natalie White, who, again, was a very serious individual. She was a, a writer for The Wanderer, had a doctorate, uh, and, and, uh, and she was a, a professional author 
Okay. Uh, a columnist for The Wanderer back when. Um, and so she had a reputation among conservative Catholics, traditional Catholics, uh, in the early days of being a very solid individual, solid voice for Catholicism. And um, she was converted initially by Bishop Mendez and his influence, and uh, ultimately became his secretary for so many years of his life. Um, my parents knew her, and through her they knew Bishop Mendez, uh, were the guest in his home in California at times. And um, so it was through them that we, I became, got to know Bishop Mendez also. And, um, you know, our involvement with him lasted uh, throughout, well, up until the time of his death. We were there when he died uh, at his bedside. And um, it was the same concern about, uh, you know, the, the mental capacity of Archbishop Took that was also at play. When it came to, to Bishop Mendez, um, we saw in, in Bishop Mendez that sharpness of mind, that intellectual acumen uh, that we did not hear about in Bishop Took. I mean, everything we heard, were hearing from the people who were closely associated with that Bishop Took was that, well, quote unquote, he had the mind of a child. Uh, and all the things that they told us about it, all these vignettes, uh, the experiences they had with him, uh, kind of corroborated that. With Archbishop Mendes, it wasn't that way at all. And um, I mean, those who were professionally associated with him as attorneys, uh, who he, he dealt with right up, you know, the closing years of his life, uh, and physicians, and uh, and ourselves. I mean, we, we would have been very, very concerned, as we were concerned about Archbishop Took and his medals day, we would have been very concerned about Bishop Mendes too. But we had no red flags there. We, we, we saw and could testify to his mental acumen um, and uh, that he was very, very uh, sharp, aware, uh, thinking very rationally. Um, it, you know, initially his thought was to consecrate Bishop Kelly, Father Kelly, and myself when he became ill uh, with an ammonia, uh, that by the grace of God, he survived, and much to the amazement of his pulmonary care specialist, Dr. Yamanaka, who attributed Bishop Mendo's survival to the power of the sacraments, uh, interestingly enough. Um, Bishop Mendez asked me, you know, um, should I consecrate you? And I, uh, he had never actually come out and just asked me that. And I had never commented on it. And so I think the, the fact that I had never actually responded to that intention of his uh, prompted him to ask me. And my answer was, I know, I don't believe so. I said, I don't believe I'm ready for that in any case. And he simply nodded his head and he never brought it up again, which indicated to me that, I mean, he got the point, he got the answer and he understood it very well. Um, he didn't have to keep asking me as though, you know, did I ask you that question? <laughs> no, he knew very well. And the very night before he consecrated Bishop Kelly, uh, Bishop Mendez said to us, I know they will excommunicate me for, for doing this, for consecrating you. 
he said. So he expected that, the consequences with the new order. His answer was, though, I will laugh at them from heaven because he believed it was the right thing to do. Okay. Um, so again, uh, he, he didn't say that flippantly. Um, he, he took it very seriously. He was very thoughtful about it. And um, everything he said and did and how he conducted himself, uh, just uh, despite, you know, again, just as there were rumors flying about Archbishop Took, there were, the rumor mill was flying about Bishop Mendes too. But we had our, our, our direct personal involvement with them on, on so many levels. Uh, and, um, and we can testify under oath, you know, what we saw, and we can verify that he was of sound mind. Okay. That he knew uh, what he was doing, that he consecrated Bishop Kelly, and he accepted the consequences of it. Yeah. Okay, wow, that's a lot. Thank you, Father. Um, maybe just one last question in, in closing, Father. We, uh, uh, just a matter of days away from the beginning of the Lenten season, uh, one of our viewers wanted to know if you had any advice to uh, a Catholic who maybe doesn't look forward to Lent so much because of the, uh, the fasting and penances that are associated with Lent. What kind of advice or encouragement would you offer to them? Well, we, we are approaching Lent. Of course, Ash Wednesday is coming uh, just how many days away now? Pumke Jays by Sunday coming up, right? The Ash Wednesday following, so uh, a little more than a week away. Uh, some people dread that. I think as a person gets older, though, and I don't mean necessarily 60 and above, from which, you know, after which point they're not obliged to fast. I mean, <clears throat> even those going into their 40s and 50s who are still obliged to fast, I think they appreciate Lent more and more uh, as the tremendous opportunity to make spiritual progress. I think uh, the older we get, the more we take to heart the words of St. Paul on Septuagesima Sunday about running the race, about fighting the fight. And um, we realize that this is absolutely necessary to, uh, to gain heaven, to uh, uh, make spiritual progress. So um, those who make any spiritual progress in the, uh, in the spiritual life um, understand the necessity of striving forward. And they see Lent as a tremendous opportunity. I mean, sure, the Christmas season is all very comforting, and uh, um, that's all very nice, but we see our Lord leave that behind to set about doing the Father's work, what he had come for, our redemption. And um, we see the need to follow our Lord out of the manger, even out of Nazareth into Takeda, you know, where he performs his first public miracle. And then to uh, accompany him through those three years of his public life. And um, we realized that, you know, he himself had to deal with loneliness and discomfort, privations, all during that time. Um, so it has to ultimately become a labor of love. Now, if somebody approaches Lent with the idea that I have so many things to do and so many responsibilities, and I have a, a very difficult time observing the fast, and still meeting all my other obligations. Well, that person should talk to a traditional priest uh, in whom they have confidence to advise them. 
And it could be that they're really not obliged to fast or the strict fast because the obligations uh, of life require them to just take more nourishment. So if somebody's trying to do what is morally impossible, yeah, I could see that being discouraged by that fact. Um, because no one is obliged to do that. But if they find it uh, that, that a burden that, that blocks them from fulfilling the duties of their state in life, um, they should talk to a priest about it to see what exactly they are obliged to do. But someone who is just, uh, shall we say, a spiritual coward, <laughs> you know, a spiritually lazy, and says, yeah, I, I, I hate to go through this, this um, period of mortification. Um, well, they need to, you know, uh, they, they summon their courage to, to uh, ask the intercession of St. Peter and St. Paul. Uh, they need to set aside a course of spiritual reading for Lent that will be a constant source of encouragement to them. There are any number of books they can read that would be very inspiring to them um, to uh, enable them to, uh, uh, shall we say, um, fight the good fight during Lent. And, uh, you know, that would get them ready for the, for the contest, as it were. Um, they need that encouragement. But um, they should lay down certain rules for themselves. If they're not praying the rosary every day, which is sort of baseline for every traditional Catholic, then at least during Lent, they should make that resolution. They're going to pray at least five decades of the rosary every day. If they're not meditating every day, they should at least do realistically set aside, if it's only a matter of five minutes even, where they just turn their attention away from the things of the world and just uh, turn their attention to the divine presence um, and to be aware of... Uh, the God, the divine God's presence, um, not only all around them, but even in their very souls. Hopefully, they're in the state of grace. Right? Uh, during Lent, it'd be very helpful for them to make the resolution to um, uh, not only to um, pray the rosary day, for sure, and uh, give five minutes at least to closing out the world and just thinking of God kind of meditation, primitive meditation, but also to go to confession once a week. You know. um, they, that would require them to examine their consciences once a week, go to confession, with the idea of being more attentive. And uh, all of this, by the way, all of this is about Christ. In his word, his word to our Blessed Lady, I must be about my father's business. This is the the attitude, the mentality, the, the mission that we should have in Lent. Every one of us should have that mission. I must be about my father's business. My father's business is the justification and the sanctification of my soul. I must be attentive to that. God wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live. So someone who is habitually living in a state of mortal sin, he should realize that this is to be about his father's business, to be in the state of grace. For those who live in the state of grace, normally, uh, they should realize that this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
Be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are the words that should ring in the ear of someone who is used to living in the state of grace, that now they are called to a greater love, and not just love God enough to at least stay out of mortal sin, uh, to at least not set some kind of idol in, in his place and commit mortal sin in one's life. But, as our Lord said, to leave the things of the world behind and follow him. Right? There is perfection. And uh, so, according to our state in life and according to the state of our souls, and whether we are in the purgative way, still trying to escape the clutches of mortal sin, or whether we're in the state of uh, even the illuminative way, um, whether we've done that, we've, we've escaped the clutches of mortal sin for the most part, and are now living habitually in the state of grace, um, we, God still wants us to strive forward, spiritually. Um, ultimately, you know, Tom, it really comes down to this. It all comes down to the love of God. And um, those who love God very, very little have very little motivation to love Him more. The more they do love Him, the more motivation they have to want to love Him more. And um, ultimately, it is the saints in heaven now who love Him with all their hearts and minds and soul and strength who cannot love Him enough. You know, as far as they're concerned, you know, it is a constant joy to love him. Um, but uh, if someone approaches Lent with the, you know, approaching, oh no, here we go again, you know, um, because of the mortifications involved, it's an indication of a rather weak love for God. I have one caveat about that, though, by, by the way. There are people who do dread Lent for a specific reason, <clears throat> which can be a stumbling block for them. And that is maybe a crisis of conscience. Maybe they're a bit scrupulous. Maybe not. But they go into Lent, and they don't really know what they're supposed to do. And so they're constantly in doubt as to whether or not they're making a good Lent. For example, you know, the rule about fasting is generally uh, one full meal, and in days of partial abstinence, they can have meat at the main meal once a day. And then two smaller meals, which together, well, they're meatless, and the two smaller meal, meals together cannot equal the quantity of the main meal. Okay, That sounds like a fairly simple formula, but for some people, it's very hard for them to gauge this, and their meals uh, might be somewhat irregular, too. You know, they're working and taking care of children and sewing, and they're trying to make the best of <clears throat> something of a chaotic lifestyle uh, because of demands made upon them. Um, they might find themselves in a situation where they're always worried. You know, am I fasting? Am I observing the fast? Uh, well, I mean, if I, if I find myself taking care of children during the day and I'm getting a little weak, and a little crabby, and I realized, gee, I need to take a bite of something uh, to uh, get my metabolism where it should be. Am I committing a mortal sin by doing that? You know, people have sometimes these worries, and now I can understand the concerns people have about that. Especially, you know, we talk about those who just dread making any sacrifices. These are people, rather, 
who are conscientious, who want to do the best they can, <clears throat> but under the circumstances, you know, they, they find it hard to know that they're actually keeping the fast. And that's the problem they're having. Not because they don't want to fast, because they do. <clears throat> but circumstances might make it very difficult for them. And they don't know exactly where to draw the line. Um, I mean, if somebody, <clears throat> practically speaking, says, okay, well, I had two smaller meals today, so now I have to make a main meal and I have to eat, uh, I have to eat more than I ate at those other two meals. So I better keep eating until I'm sure that I eat more at my main meal than I ate at the, the two previous meals, right? The letter of the law, I have to, you know, obviously that's a formula for disaster right there. Um, <clears throat> uh, and also, you know, there's, there's the standard things. Well, I'm, I'm fixing the, the main meal and I tasted the soup and it had beef froth in it because you can have that at the main meal, but I tasted it while I was making it just to make sure it was right. And now, you know, is that it? Can I have meat at the main meal now? You know, or have I already, uh, uh, you know, had my dose of meat for the day? People scruple about that. Understand, but this is an indication, not that they don't want to keep the fast, it's because they do. Okay. Now that I can understand. That can be a problem. God does not want people scrupulating about things like that and troubled about that. And so what I tell them is, look, basically, as far as the quantity of food you take, if you're really earnestly trying to keep the fast and you're wondering, well, did I eat too much? Well, try as far as possible to, you know, observe that program of two smaller meals. I mean, the moral theologian has talked about two ounces of food for breakfast, eight ounces of food for lunch, and then a main meal that would be more than basically 10 ounces of food total. I don't know anybody who does that or ever did that. I just don't know anybody who practically did that, right? Uh, and I don't know anyone who actually could do it under the circumstances today. <clears throat> so there are some things that are really basically not helpful uh, in practice today. But I would say, look, one, one way you, you know you're fasting is if you're hungry. If you go through Lent and you're not hungry, you're never hungry, you're not fasting. Okay. So if you, if you eat enough in the morning so that you get through the morning, you have the strength to fulfill your obligations, but by lunchtime, you're hungry, then you know, okay, I'm fasting, right? Uh, I'm hungry, I take my noonday meal, whatever, uh, lunch, and that satisfies me for the time. I'm not hungry. But by the evening meal, I'm actually feeling hungry. I, tend, I, I wonder how much our people in America today normally feel hunger by the time they reach the time of the next meal. I'm not going to ask you. But I mean, if, if people have a breakfast and it comes time for lunch, I mean, I wonder how many of our own people actually, you know, say, can actually say, gee, I'm really hungry. I, you know, lunch is coming just in time. Um, or they just eat because it's lunchtime. And um, again, you know, by dinner time, they just eat because it's dinner time, but not because they're really experiencing any real hunger. No. So, um, if, if one goes through Lent like that, I would tend to tell them, well, look, you need to cut back because, you know, the fasting is so that you experience what hunger is. <clears throat> As 
really the sensation of fasting, as it were, and um, to undergo that mortification. If you're keeping yourself full enough all the time that you never experience what it is to feel hungry, then you're very unlikely fasting. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, you know, as a practical thing, that's what I tell people to go by. So try to keep the other prescriptions regarding the fasting. Um, but look for that as a real indication of whether it's a real fast for you or not. And that is a very subjective thing. That's a very individual thing, you know. Depends upon your metabolism, depends upon, you know, your bodily needs, depends upon your duties of state in life and how much energy you need to get through. So, I mean, when you talk about fasting, uh, you can set down a hard, fast rule for everybody, hard, fast rule for everybody, but it doesn't apply to everybody. You know, it really is a very personal thing as to what I am doing to mortify my sensual appetites. Um, and I think it, for each one of us, it would come down to that. Am I, am I hungry? Would I get the time for the next meal? Uh, I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. I find it helpful. It's, uh, it would be nice if it were helpful for somebody else, too. I think that's um, good <clears throat> in any case, but if people embrace it as a matter of love, and say, okay, uh, I have to be about my father's business, as our Lord Jesus Christ came for that purpose, to be about his father's business, which is my redemption, then our Lord needs me to be about that same business with him, to follow him. And he says, the only way I can follow him is by carrying the cross after him. And that's what I'm going to do during Lent. And uh, I want, I'm going to make this the best Lent I've ever lived. It might be the last Lent I'll ever live, but I want to make sure it's going to be the best Lent I've ever lived. Uh, so I'm going to dedicate myself to that. Sit down, make a program, spiritual reading, daily prayer, and yes, how you're going to maintain the fast. Uh, come into it with some very practical, uh, very pla practical plan, and you'll make a good Lent if you keep to it. Okay, very good. Let's do it. Father, <clears throat> thank you for uh, thank you for everything. Thanks for being here tonight, answering all no, these questions. Certainly, Kyle, I hope it's somewhat helpful, somewhat it interesting. Is. It is. <laughs> I appreciate those who asked the questions. I'm sure you had more, right? We always have more, Father. I apologize but, uh, for that. That's all right. We'll be here next week. Can we guarantee that we'll cover those? Next yes, Father. Let's do okay. it. Okay, and probably a few more outstanding questions right. too. Yes, okay. Father. Yep. And I'll try to be. Uh, I, I make this resolution for Lent. I will try to undergo a verbal fast. Okay. Okay. So I'll try to economize oh uh, more uh, in terms of the answers. So you'll, you'll have to grade me as time goes on. Okay, well, I do. Father, thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.